Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hey, what's up, digital agency owners and podcast listeners. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to ask you a quick question. Are you currently stressed out, cash crunched, or fed up with your business? If you feel this way, you might think that you have a lead generation problem, or maybe that it's the area you live in, or maybe this market has become too competitive. Maybe you think that your business can't be turned around, and I want you to think again. In my many years of experience, I can tell you now that it's something much deeper that you're likely not even aware of yet. It's like a client who comes to you saying they need a website or Facebook ads or maybe a mobile app developed, but they don't even realize the deeper challenge or opportunity that's blocking them from success. Now, if you'd like to find out what your deeper challenge is, then I want to invite you to apply for a YouGurus strategy call where we'll dig into those underlying issues and get you moving forward like never before. The aha moments will shift the way you think forever, and you'll finally get the answers as to why your business hasn't taken off. The number one most important decision to rapidly grow your business starts by booking your strategy call. Go to yougurus.com slash apply to start your application process for this free call. Once again, go to yougurus.com slash apply to get started. All right, let's introduce today's guest. Hey, what's up, podcast listeners, digital agency owners. Welcome to another episode of the Digital Agency Show. I'm your host, Brent Weaver. And today we have a fantastic guest and interview in store for you. Uh, we're going to be welcoming Cameron Harold to the program. He is the mastermind behind hundreds of companies' exponential growth. Uh, at age 21, he had 14 employees. By 35, he had built his first two $100 million companies. By the age of 42, Cameron uh, engineered the 1-800-GOT-JUNKS spectacular growth from $2 million to $106 million in revenue in 3,100 employees. Uh, and he did that in just six years. And he landed over 5,200 media placements in that same six years, getting coverage uh, even with people like Oprah. Um, Cameron is a, a, a very well-acclaimed uh, speaker. He, he speaks a lot with the uh, Entrepreneur Organization Program and is actually uh, rated as the top lecturer at their master's, uh, Entrepreneurial Master's Program, and he's the author of uh, many books. One of those, Double-Double, uh, Great Read. We'll link to that in the show notes. Um, he's got a few other books coming out, Vivid Vision, uh, um, and, uh, and several others. And we're really excited to welcome Cameron Harold to the program. Hey, Brent. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So Cameron, um, you've got a, a, an amazing rap sheet. You've done a lot of great things uh, in your business. Um, you know, one of the things that when I first um, came across you and, and heard you speak that you introduced me to, and I definitely want to talk a lot about um, your upcoming book, Vivid Vision, today and how to build a great vision. But one of the things that has just stuck with me um, that I wanted to open with today was uh, the entrepreneurial roller coaster. And, uh, you know, just to, to thank you for explaining that to me. Um, it's something I, I had my wife watch uh, your, your presentation talking about the different peaks and valleys. Um, and I think you've done a very good job, great job, excellent job at um, communicating um, some really core truths about entrepreneurs. So just want to thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. 
So um, you say here that you've been a, an entrepreneur from day one, and I'm curious, um, what is it about being uh, an entrepreneur and working with entrepreneurs that gets you up in the morning? Well, I, I think for me, I was actually, I had all the very early stage entrepreneurial traits. Um, and, and it's funny because over the years in working with so many entrepreneurs all over the world, I've noticed some very, very um, consistent behavioral and even medical traits that show off in most entrepreneurial circles. Um, and, and strangely enough, the medical community in the school system calls them diseases. But most entrepreneurs are on the spectrum for attention deficit disorder, not necessarily ADHD, but definitely ADD. Most entrepreneurs are on the spectrum for bipolar disorder, which is manic depression. It's actually bipolar disorder has been nicknamed by the medical community as the CEO disease. Um, many entrepreneurs are on the spectrum for Tourette's, which is thinking out loud. Um, and I'm there for all three of those. And so I think at a very early age, my parents noticed those, the school system noticed those. I didn't do well in school, even though I was quite smart. I found the shortcuts and just got bored really easily and had too many other things on my mind or, or catching my attention. Um, so and then I was also groomed as an entrepreneur. My father was an entrepreneur, as were both of my grandfathers, and they groomed my brother and sister and I to all be entrepreneurs. So that's all we've really known. We've never looked at jobs as being an enviable thing or a good thing. We've looked at, at entrepreneurship as really our path. And we had those traits. Um, so I think from a very early age, I had the entrepreneurial traits. I was running these little entrepreneurial systems. I was groomed to be an entrepreneur. And then I also have seen entrepreneurs just work too hard. Um, if you kind of remember the, the fly trying to get out the window, you know, we've all seen the fly banging its head on the window and trying harder and harder and harder and in desperation and ending up dead sitting on the windowsill. But if the fly would just turn to the right 90 degrees, the door is right there and it's open. And, and I think entrepreneurs are very similar that way. And I see them working so hard. And I've always known the cheat sheets. I've always known the systems or the hacks to grow very successful, fast-growing businesses that are amazing cultures. And I've really wanted to help them. So from a very early age, in fact, when I was 24, I was coaching entrepreneurs. And that was way before coaching was even popular. I'm, you know, I've been coaching CEOs and entrepreneurs for 28 years now. Um, and, you know, I think the world is kind of littered with coaches, most of whom have never built companies. But I've also been able to build some companies along the way and then help entrepreneurs at the same time. That's uh, that's amazing. When you say you were groomed, I'm just kind of curious because I'm uh, uh, well, I've had entrepreneurs in my my family. My dad was an engineer, um, and my mom worked in the school system, so maybe they had some entrepreneurial like uh, ideas and things like that. But uh, you know, my dad always worked with you know big oil companies and things like that. He was not a you know a, a literal entrepreneur in the sense. Were you guys like talking about like product market fit around the dinner table? I mean, is that what you mean when you say groomed? I'm just kind of curious what that looks like growing up in that type of atmosphere. Yeah, we talked about employees. We talked about problems at work. We talked about marketing. We talked about sales. We talked about pricing. We talked about buying low and selling high. We talked about, you know, theft in an office. We thought, talked about, um, saw my dad being stressed and being, you know, freaking out about business during the 1982 recession when interest rates got to 18 and three quarter percent. We, uh, and then we were given all these little business ventures. You know, I probably, and I did a TED talk around this, it's still on the main TED.com website. I did a talk about eight years ago about raising kids as entrepreneurs. It was originally called Raising Kids as Entrepreneurs instead of Lawyers. Um, and it was because I, I just talked about all the probably 15 different little businesses I had by the time I was 17 or 18 years old. So we were really encouraged to do these little entrepreneurial ventures and then to learn from them, not just to, you know, go and sell water at the golf course. But, you know, what did we learn about 
about selling water at the golf course. We learned about about buying it. We learned about our cost of goods sold. We learned about gross margin. We learned about marketing it. We learned about having good advertising. We learned about where to sit on the golf course to sell it. So we didn't have competition from the club itself. Um, you know, we, so, so we would not only run these little businesses, but we would learn from them. And I think that's what's happening today is you see parents helicopter parenting their kid running a lemonade stand instead of letting the kid learn, you know, letting the kids sit outside by themselves and talking to them about it later. You know, more parents are out there flagging down their friends and pretending their kids all entrepreneurial when the mom just got way too much free time on her hands. What you want to do is let your kid out there and, and fail and try and, and then come back in and complain and then coach them and let them go back out and, and let them learn and reflect and have the concrete experience. So that was really how we were groomed all along was, was having the experience and then talking about it and then also talking about my dad's company or grandfather's companies. That's really fascinating. I, I just think with, um, for myself, I have two young kids and, uh, and I've been entrepreneurial for as long as I can remember. And I think sometimes my parents had a hard time, uh, dealing with that maybe because they, they, they didn't run businesses. They didn't understand the potential there, but I, I think my earliest yeah. memory was, uh, selling seashells on the beach at seven, um, you know, trying to, to save up enough money for, uh, buying a, a an airplane, a little right. toy airplane, right? Well, and I think where, yeah, where, where I was lucky was I was groomed that way where the, you know, the real entrepreneurial genius comes is from the kids whose mom is a teacher and dad's a doctor and they weren't groomed at all. And they've either had to learn from, from experience or from the school of hard knocks or from watching others. And I give huge credit to those people because they didn't have the, the little head starts that I might've had. Now, what also has changed over the years is since 1998. So in the last 20 years, entrepreneurship has finally become cool. It's finally become the thing to do and the, the, the it thing. The media has really latched on to how cool and fun entrepreneurship can be. But prior to that, entrepreneurship was vilified. You know, in the school system, it wasn't taught. It was taught that you were bad, you were greedy, you were capitalist. Um, you know, there was never an entrepreneur being a hero in any movie or book other than Atlas Shrugged. And so, so it was really hard for people prior to that to, because we really stood out. Um, what I want to do now is get the medical system to stop diagnosing kids as having a problem and start diagnosing kids as having the entrepreneurial traits and saying, holy shit, we should actually nurture these kids because they are very similar to Ted Turner and Henry Ford and Richard Branson and Bill Gross and Steve Jobs, all who were clinically diagnosed, but were never medicated. If we'd medicated those people, we would have medicated the entrepreneurship right out of the system. That's really interesting. I, I remember, uh, you know, kids made like the friendship bracelets in elementary school and I, I made them and I started mass producing and selling them. And then the school created yeah, yeah. a rule that we couldn't sell stuff to other kids. Um, yeah. Literally squashing, like like the regulator came in and said, like, you can no longer do this. And I got in trouble for it, which is, you oh. know, probably the opposite of really what you want to see. So that happened to my sister at university. She was selling clothing, university clothing with the, the university colors and university Greek letters. And the school system tried to shut her down. And she went to the head of the business um, school because she was in the business school there and said, look, you're trying to teach us to be, you know, be entrepreneurial and to be into business. And at the same time, you're shutting somebody down. So she said, I'm going to go to the mass media about how full of shit your school is and how full of shit your business program is. And she went to Queens University, which is kind of like the Harvard of Canada. And she said, or... I'm going to pay your school a 10% licensing fee and I'm going to stay in business. And that's ended, that ended up what was happening. She ended up paying the school a 10% licensing fee for using their logos and colors. And, and, um, and she sold more, comp, more school clothing than the school did because her stuff was cooler and better branded. 
But that was a perfect example of where schools need to adapt and say, look, if we're going to teach entrepreneurship, we need to fully embrace it. We, we need to set up an area in the lunchroom for kids to run their little tables and businesses and then sure have them pay a, pay a fee like a normal, you know, rent on an office would be. And, and I think parents need to do the same with their kids, you know, teach the kids to purchase the Kool-Aid and purchase the sugar and pay for the markers and have that as costs of goods sold and overhead and teach them. Yeah. When you made $10 selling your Kool-Aid, you also had $5 in expenses but we don't teach the kids the lessons. And then we also say, Oh, and donate all your money to charity. Well, what the hell is the point of running the business? <laughs> like, you know, it doesn't make any sense. So that's, those are the rules that I think we have to start teaching kids and so many entrepreneurs, you know, even in their thirties and forties, the reason so many businesses fail is they don't understand the basics of business, which is revenue minus cost of goods sold equals gross margin minus your overhead equals net margin. And then you have to pay all of your taxes. So we need to teach that shit in school instead of teaching the war of 1812. So when you were at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I think this is the first time you mentioned that you um, kind of created a, a vision. I think at the time you called it a painted picture uh, for the business. Um, and, I, and I definitely want to go into uh, some depth on the idea of vision building today uh, for people to either get intrigued by this concept or get started or, you know, follow up with you for, for more information on how to do this explicitly. Uh, but I'm just kind of curious, what was like, what was your, the impetus for that? Like, you know, you'd obviously been running businesses for a while and then all of a sudden one day you say, okay, look, I have to write this down. I have to put this on a piece of paper and, and allow this to be a tool within this company to achieve the goal that I want. What, what was the reason behind that? Yeah, you're part. You're kind of accurate. So it was actually that was the second time that I'd used a, what we call the painted picture, which I now call a vivid vision. The first time was two years prior to me joining One Eight Hundred Got Junk. Um, Brian from One Eight Hundred Got Junk, myself, and about 80, 18 other entrepreneurs from Vancouver were invited to a lunch with a high performance sports psychologist. He was essentially an Olympic coach, and this Olympic coach taught us the process of visualization that high performance athletes used in sports. And taught us that if we could create a vision and articulate it in a way that our employees could see what the company looked and felt like three years from now, they could then figure out the plans to make it happen. So I created a, a, a painted picture at uh, what was called at the time ubarter.com when I was president of, of ubarter.com's Western Canadian operations. And I rolled that out to the team and they started to execute and put the plans in place. At the same time, Brian created his painted picture for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. So when I came along two years later to join Brian as his chief operating officer, he had 14 employees at the head office. And I came in to help him essentially make the painted picture come true. So he was the visionary and I essentially was the integrator. So I took his idea at the time, I think it was a two-page document, um, and I just helped put all the plans and systems and people in place to execute. Six years later, we had 3,100 employees system-wide and I was running everything except IT and finance. Um, so every three years, he would hand me the new painted picture, again, what I call the vivid vision, and then I would figure out how to make it happen. So he was never really a part of the how, he was always a part of where we were going. Um, and that's really where the, the process kicked into high gear. And then over the last 11 years, I've been teaching CEOs all over the world. I've got vivid visions now are being used in 28 countries around the world, as far as I know today. So 14 or so people to over 3,000 in, in six years. And this was a key tool that you used. I mean, I think that's 
uh, for everybody that's listening right now, I mean, that's that's making me pay attention, right? Like, how 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 can I use this for my own business? Um, maybe uh, give our audience that maybe doesn't have uh, an idea of what this is. You you've said you know kind of paint a picture. I can visualize what that might look like. Are we are we literally painting uh, a picture of the business, or and then you mentioned two page documents. So give us kind of the 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 cliff notes of of what is a vis- vivid vision as you create them today. Sure. And the reason I even changed the name from painted picture to vivid vision is it was just much clearer on what it actually was. People think a painted picture was a document where a, a diagram or a picture or a, or a vision board, a vivid vision is essentially a four or five page written description of your company as to what it looks like, acts like, and feels like three years from today. So you kind of roll the camera ahead, almost as if you were jumping into a time machine three years from now and you walk around your company, and you describe the culture, you describe the meeting rhythms, you describe what your employees are saying about you, what the suppliers are saying about you, what your customers are saying about you, you describe what the media is writing about you, you talk about marketing and IT and finance, you kind of come up with a paragraph for almost every section of your org chart. So the idea is not to figure out how it happened, but to describe it in its finished state, very similar to a way that a homeowner who is building a house would describe their home as if it was already built. And they'd show pictures and drawings and sketches. The the contractor could take those visions of what the home is going to look like and feel like, and they can create the blueprints or the plans to make it come true. And then they give the plans to the employees who can essentially recreate the vision of the homeowner. The vivid vision becomes a four or five page written document that everyone else can then figure out the plans on how to make come true. And it gets all the complete alignment in the organization that that really the vision statement, the one sentence vision statement has never been able to do. I mean, I've, I've experienced that uh, many times where you have this, you know, you, you write one sentence um, and, and maybe it's kind of a goal or, or a BHAG, uh, but it doesn't really have the texture or uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Gino Wickman's system, uh, EOS, and, and we use the VTO, which is a couple of page kind of more businessy type plan. Um, but the vibe I've gotten from the Vivid Vision and also reading your examples in your book is uh, it's a lot more explicit and like uh, descriptive in, in how you're just, you know, uh, laying things out or illustrating them. It's not just like a bunch of bullets. It's, you know, actually kind of imagining this thing versus just, Hey, here's yeah. our revenue goal. And here's, you know, what, how many employees we have, or here's our goal for the first quarter, et cetera. Yeah. Gino, Gino did a pretty good job at taking a, a good try at getting to kind of describe the vivid vision, what he calls the vision traction organizer. And the, the problem though, again, is that it's just a series of around 10 bullet points. that's supposed to align people and it still leaves way too much to interpretation. Um, you know, Vern Harnish in Scaling Up and Rockefeller Habits wants the inspired vision or the inspired future. But again, it doesn't give us the rest of the picture. And the BHAG, you know, doesn't talk about culture or what the media is writing. So the, the vivid vision is truly that missing document or that missing system. So I'll give you, you know, everyone who's listening an example. I think of every business like a jigsaw puzzle. And if you if you get the box of a jigsaw puzzle, the most important piece to start with is the picture on the front of the box the vision of what you're building. And you need to really see the whole vision of the jigsaw puzzle before you start. And then you have the four corners of the jigsaw puzzle. Well, for me, the four corners are the plan, the BHAG, the core values, and the core purpose. So you need to have those four things, the plan to make the vision come true, the core values, the core purpose, and the BHAG. And then the four sides of the jigsaw puzzle are all of your people systems, your strategic thinking systems, your meeting rhythms, 
and your financial systems. And if more businesses would get that and realize that they're missing the core aligning part, if people are showing up trying to build a jigsaw puzzle and they don't know what it looks like, what the, they're, they're just never going to get it done. And then if you don't have the four corners, like you drive a kid crazy trying to build a jigsaw puzzle without the four corners because they don't know how it all fits together. Early on in your book, uh, you mentioned this kind of scene of what happens in a lot of companies when they come together and create a vision or a mission statement or their core values. Um, and, and I just kind of want to read a couple of sentences of this and then um, and ask a question about this. But you said a common method to create a mission statement is to gather a group of people in a room and have them write their favorite words on a whiteboard. Then everyone <laughs> votes for their favorites uh, from these. And you take all those words that have been selected and you mash them up into one sentence and that miss. MASH is supposed to be a vision statement. Um, it's supposed to be the whole team. And, and what I think you're kind of describing in a way is uh, consensus building, of, of actually using your team and creating a vision of consensus. And one thing that really stood out to me in, in, in your book was that your approach is kind of contrarian to that in that it's the CEO's responsibility to um, literally go into the woods or by the lake and to create the vivid vision and then to bring that back to the team. And then it's not really very much up for debate, um, which is very uh, contrarian to this idea of the company kind of creating the vision for the business. Well, and it's weird. It's, it's contrary to the way that it's been done, but it's not contrary to the way that, that businesses tend to operate. So entrepreneurs tend to try to hold everyone accountable and keep them under control and, and help align them and help motivate them. Well, the only reason they have to do any of that is because nobody can see what the entrepreneur can see. And when the entrepreneur goes out into the forest or into the environment or somewhere around nature to get inspired, it's not like they're going out there to figure out what it looks like. They already know in their mind what their company looks and feels like. They just haven't written it all down. So it gives them time to just start to mind map and jot down ideas and, and pull it all out of their head. And then the reality is at that point, it's kind of like, who's with me, right? It, it's, it's where Jim Collins talked about getting the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus and everybody in the right seats. The mantra of that group, the Merry Pranksters was, are you on the bus or off the bus? And are you on the bus means, are you a part of building this vision that I share? Are you kind of on this journey that where we, where we all know where we're going? And if you're not, it's probably the right time to get off the bus. And I think that's where a lot of companies go sideways is they have people who maybe have their own vision for what they're building and you're constantly trying to align them. Imagine if everybody could see what the entrepreneur could see and they were all excited about building that same thing together. Then the entrepreneur only really has two jobs. One is to continually articulate the vision so everyone can see what everyone can see. And two is to grow people. And as long as they work on growing people, they don't have to be the one figuring out how to do this at all. The team starts to figure out how to make it happen. The team's focused on execution and everyone's completely aligned. They're really all on the same page. Hmm. That's, um, and, and I, I find a lot of conflict in, you know, just thinking about my own entrepreneurial journey over the last uh, 20 or so years that you have this thing in your head. And a lot of times the conflict is that you're just not able to, in the moments, every meeting or every, you know, every week, week in, week out, you're kind of communicating it on the fly, uh, maybe even yeah. changing some of it uh, at times. And then it creates a lot of conflict. Like they don't understand me. They don't understand what I'm getting at. Um, and I love this idea of just taking a pause and going and really unloading that into four to five pages and being explicit about that. 
I think you nailed it is that that what ends up happening is the entrepreneur tends to continually try to articulate it on the fly instead of for once and for all getting everybody on the same page. So you recommend doing this. You mentioned three years. Uh, so, so kind of two part question. Um, why three years? And second part of that is, um, you know, am I changing this uh, every year, every quarter along the way, and then like revamping it in three years? Kind of what's the cadence? It is exactly that. So you're writing the vivid vision once you lock and load and you hold on to it tight for the three year period. And then three years out, kind of two to three months prior to the start of the next three year period, you release the next vivid vision. And unless there's a huge cataclysmic event, like a global financial crisis or a complete market meltdown, or you absolutely are pivoting from becoming a restaurant to becoming a call center, you know, then then you don't change your vivid vision. The reality is every sentence of the vivid vision is a future state that you try to make come true. And there's usually one or two projects that will make each sentence come true. So every quarter you can start seeing it become more and more green as you highlight each completed sentence in green. I think a common thing that entrepreneurs suffer from, you mentioned ADD as, as being a, uh, an entrepreneurial disease is, is shiny object syndrome. The, uh, yeah, superpower, right? Superpower. The, the idea of locking something in for three years and then not touching it. I mean, that's, uh, I, I feel like I would have the, the desire to maybe shift things or, or change things too much. Any, any tips for how to, to lock that in? Yeah, your desire is going to be on how to come up with ideas on how to make it come true. And that still allows the entrepreneur to be entrepreneurial and to have their quick start ideas and to be, you know, to to see the opportunities. But the vision of where they're taking the company is often very, very static. Mm. Right? You know what you're trying to build. The how you get there is different, right? It's kind of like I'm building a home, you know, this beautiful craftsman style you know, blah, 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 I go on and describe it all. Well, every once in a while, we have to move a room and we change a load-bearing wall to over here and we move the window and like, that's just tweaking things, but we're still building the same the same home. We're not tearing it down and building a condo. How do you approach this with uh, partnerships where you have two uh, founders? Is it, uh, uh, that's something that I don't think I I read in the book about how you would approach um, crafting that and in, in, in um you know, is it that you both come up with vivid visions and merge them? Is it one person owns that? Oh, wow. I, I hope I put that in there because if I, if I haven't, I definitely have to revisit that. So, yeah, you get, let's say you have two or three co-founders in the organization or two or three co-CEOs. Each person goes off-site on their own independently and describes all of the same areas. So each of you describe marketing, each of you describe IT, each describes finance, et cetera. And then you come back and you kind of merge all of your points together and you talk through them all and you keep all of the ones where you're in complete alignment. You discuss and debate the ones where you may be different and you make agreements so that what you end up with at the end of the day is a shared vision. Finally, that kind of shared vision for the organization. Very similar, by the way, to how a family would try to execute on a vision. You get the, the two spouses to sit down and discuss what we're building as a family. Where are we taking the you know the family? What do our vacations look like? What do our mornings look like? What do our evenings look like? What's our education of our kids like? How do we? What are our, our family core values? How are we going to raise our kids together? You know, what are the shared responsibilities and independent responsibilities? And and you you craft that instead of battling each other with completely different ideas of how your family is going to work. You get everyone on the same page. When I got to that part of your book. Uh, the fact that you included that in your book, 
about creating a vivid vision for you as an individual, also creating a vivid vision uh, for your family. Um, I kind of felt like with the usual business books out there, like you didn't have to do that, but I think that's so awesome that you said, look, this is a tool that doesn't just work for your business that can work um, for you as an individual and also for your family um, as a way to, you know, get everybody on the same page or kind of level up to become your ideal self. Um, I, I thought that that was, uh, you know, a, a bit of genius. Like, I, I don't think it was it was necessary. Like, a lot of business books don't touch on that. Um, but I feel like this is something that if somebody could use it both as an individual, as a family, and in their business, they might kind of start to see alignment out of those things versus creating this massive, amazing vision for their business. But then personally, they're you know, running on empty or they're, 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 you know, not in alignment. They're not setting goals that align with the business. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of even the normal, what I call the grandmotherisms, you know, the, the lessons that grandmother taught us about life are also very applicable in business. So I just thought that it was an opportunity to take a business tool and bring it into our family as well. And, and much of the process, um, seems kind of very similar, but, um, very similar. Yeah. yeah. Now you run um, your your current business, and you, you kind of mentioned this in the book is very much uh, built around you versus the three thousand plus employees uh, that you had at at one eight hundred got junk. How do things change when you're creating a vivid vision? Because I know a lot of folks in our audience are running you know solopreneur businesses um, or maybe even transitioning from a full time gig into their business. Um, when you are a business of one. Uh, creating this type of vision. Is this a tool that is still useful for that? And how do you navigate that? Yeah. And I'm, I'm not a business of one. I've got employees and I've got contractors and I've got freelance companies that do work and we're building. So in addition to my normal coaching and speaking, and then my, my, now my four books that are out, um, I also have a group called the COO Alliance, which is the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. You know, there's all these organizations and mastermind groups that for, for entrepreneurs, you know, you've got EO and YPO and Vistage and Genius Network and Maverick and, you know, Baby Bathwater and Go Abundance. It goes on and on and on places, strategic coach, places that entrepreneurs can go learn, but there was never a place for the second command. So we're creating a network throughout North America for the COOs and it's called the COO Alliance. So I have, you know, a vivid vision for the COO Alliance. I have a vivid vision for the COO Alliance City Forums, which will be the regional programs. And then I also have a vivid vision for my entire organization, which includes the coaching and speaking and, you know, events that we run. So that gets everyone on the same page. When the media is writing about me, they can read about my vivid visions for my company and they get it. Uh, When my employees are talking about, you know, ideas and opportunities, they can see where their ideas align and why maybe they're a great idea for two years from now, but not necessarily this year, because we know what we're kind of building and focusing and growing. So it is still a very, a very aligning thing. Even for a solopreneur, it's great to have a vivid vision for their company because it allows them to say yes to the opportunities and say no to the wrong opportunities. You know, I think we're often faced with these great opportunities and introductions and people, but if they're not aligned with where they're going, they're simply a distraction. You know, I'm a, a member of a group called the Genius Network. I'm in my fourth year with the Genius Network. In fact, I'm actually doing this interview from the Genius Network um, offices today because I'm, I'm here for a meeting this afternoon. And I meet some amazing people. Like, I've, you know, I've got the, the founder of ClickFunnels, the founder of Infusionsoft, the number one podcaster in the world, um, uh, number one blogger on, on Medium are all members of the Genius Network with me. And I'm often learning from them and getting great ideas. Some of them are completely applicable to what I'm building and some of them are are amazing ideas, but complete distractions for what I'm building. 
So it helps me to filter uh, those opportunities. And it also helps them to know how they can help me. You know, the more I share my vivid vision with other people, the more they can uh, figure out how to help grow my business. That's one thing that jumped out at me uh, in, in how you roll this out, that there's an internal rollout and there's also an external rollout. Uh, and that seems like, like for example, like the VTO document uh, isn't necessarily something that uh, you, you know, I'm sure you could put it on your website, uh, but it's not really meant for that. Uh, but your vivid vision is, uh, and that was... Uh, that definitely kind of surprised me in a way, just that this is something that you not only use internally, but you actually share with the world. Uh, and um, yeah, can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the reality at the end of the day is no one can execute like I can execute. No one can execute like really any company that is focused can execute. So when you share your vivid vision with the world, people start to conspire to help you make it come true. And it's kind of, you just have to be a little bit less worried about them stealing your ideas because the reality is they already have their own vision. They already have their own strategy. Um, You know, it's very similar to Elon Musk deciding to roll out the IP for Tesla. You know, he's just not, he's just not worried about um, people stealing his idea. Um, So yeah, you just share it with the world. The reality is you're going to get more upside from sharing it with your employees, potential employees, suppliers, potential employers, suppliers, your banker, et cetera. You get more upside from sharing it with all those people than you do risk of someone stealing your idea. I mean, I feel like at the core of that is just this, you know, abundance mindset abundance. versus scarcity mindset that if you share this, you know, people are going to, as you said, steal your ideas versus uh, the thing that we might not be thinking um, out of fear is that somebody might read this and call you and say, hey, I can, I can actually help you do this. Yeah, exactly. You know, Peter Diamandis, who popularized the whole idea of the abundance theory is um, in a, a mastermind group with me. So that, that idea just really resonates. This has been uh, a fantastic interview, Cameron. Um, and I'm going to get to how people can follow up with you to learn more about crafting their own vivid vision uh, here in a moment. Um, but are you ready for our lightning round? I am for sure. Let's go for it. All right. What is the best advice you've ever received? Wow. Um, from probably from my dad when I was about 16, he said, you know, you'll never be smart enough to figure this out on your own and your R and D should stand for rip off and duplicate. He said that companies have spent millions of dollars figuring out almost every problem and opportunity. Just take their best ideas and put them in place rather than you trying to figure it out. That is, that's a powerful idea for a young person to figure out. I, I don't think somebody ever, uh, used that term of R and D for me until I was, I don't know, uh, close to 30 in EO or something, you know, just to be able to have that as a founding idea is, uh, uh, almost unfair, but we'll, uh, leave that for another conversation. What's the point of working hard when somebody already else has worked hard? Let's take the cheat sheets. Yeah. and, And I know you're, I mean, you're super active in a ton of masterminds. You mentioned genius network, but just being around other really smart people and investing in that constantly. Um, I think this was maybe a Facebook message that you posted a long time ago about, uh, you said you were talking with Evan Pagan, uh, a mutual friend of ours. And he had said, yeah, I'm not investing in, you know, uh, traditional assets anymore. I'm just investing in relationships. Uh, and that was something that you had taken, uh, from, uh, I think him, or, or you mentioned him in that sentence that you kind of shifted to investing in these, you know, learning from other people. 
Yeah, Evan was really pivotal for me in that. Another one was Tim Ferriss, who's another personal friend. He stayed at my house and I took him to Burning Man. They both really showed me that it's not what we know, it's who we know. Um, I posted something today in a private group that said, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And what I need to start doing is, is stop talking while I'm in a lot of these groups and listen more because I'm taking away from learning from the other people. But I'll give you an example. Over the next four weeks, I'll be at the Genius Network this week for three days. Next week, I'll be at Baby Bathwater in Utah for three days. Two weeks after that, I'll be at Strategic Coach at the 10X program with Dan Sullivan, Peter Diamandis, Joe Polish for, for a day. And then the week after that, I'll be at the main stage TED conference for five days in Vancouver. So in those four programs are massive, massive quantum leaps for me in my business, huge on the networking. But I invest, I invest big in my own personal growth. And that's even why I started the COO Alliance was so that the entrepreneurs can invest in their team or their second in commands growth. I think the more we invest in ourselves, the, the faster we propel our lives and our business. That's great. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? Um, probably the idea of focus, uh, either focus or networking, like really knowing people and asking them for help and then being able to help them, you know, that's been huge. But then the idea of focus, I use an app called commit to three and I have a daily accountability partner. So as an example, Joe Polish is my daily business accountability partner. And he and I set our daily top three business goals together and help hold each other accountable to getting at least three big things done every day. That's really cool. It's, uh, I'm a big Joe Polish fan, so uh, congrats on having him as your accountability partner. I'm sitting sitting in one of his offices right now. <laughs> I'll be spending the next three days with him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I know you mentioned the, the Genius Network, so and we'll also link out to that stuff in the show notes, guys, if you are not familiar with those uh, programs. I think you've got a lot of, um, you've mentioned a lot on this this program, and we want to make sure for people that you know are not yet familiar with that, check out the website, yougurus.com slash podcast, go to the show notes. Um Cameron, can you share an internet resource or a tool? You just mentioned Commit to Three, so maybe a different one uh, that you can share with our listeners that you use on a regular basis. Um, sorry, well, I, I blanked on that. What was that? Can you share an internet resource or a tool? Uh, you mentioned Commit to Three, but is there another tool that you use on a daily basis? Another tool that I use on a daily basis. I use one um, called Focus Time, which is, um, it helps me just do sprints, Pomodoros. So very, very focused, um, you know, 15 or 20 minute sprints. And then I take a few minute break to give my brain a break and I use it on airplanes um, or just in my office. So it, it's a little timer that, that sets me for 20 minutes of focus and then a five minute break and I'll get up and walk around the plane and play a game on my phone. And then I go back and sprint through another 20 minutes. And I think a lot of people are busy being busy, but I try to focus on critical things and, and just focus in sprints and then knowing that I can't be focused for long periods of time. So I cut myself some slack. Very cool. Is there a book you would recommend besides your own and why? A book that I'd recommend besides my own. Um, hmm. So I, let's see. I mean, I love EOS traction. I think, I think Gino did a really good job at dumbing down and I'm saying that politely, but dumbing down the systems that Vern Harnish created with scaling up and Rockefeller habits. I think Vern's stuff is great. If you're a, 250 employee company or bigger. I think Gino's stuff is great if you're a 50 employee or less. Um, I think his is good. I still think The One Minute Manager by Ken Blanchard is probably the best book on leadership out there. Um, and I think what people, let me give you a different spin on it. Instead of just reading a book, figure out what you're working on over the next quarter and 
apply all of your learning and reading to whatever you're working on. I think too many people are reading books at random and trying to apply those and it causes stress and it also just takes up time. I think if we applied our reading and our knowledge towards what we are working on every day, it would be critical. And, and I will also plug one of my books, unfortunately. Meeting Suck is a book that all employees at all companies should read. The reality is everyone complains about meetings and that they suck, but really no one has ever been trained on how to run them or how to attend them and participate at them. And I wrote Meeting Suck so that all employees would know how to show up and attend meetings and so that we know how to run them and also know which meetings to run. And you think we spend one to two hours a day in meetings without even having any idea what we're doing at them. And meetings are expensive. You put you put six people in a meeting, and uh, you know, depending on what they're billable or their the the opportunity cost is, that's one thing I know that I kind of woke up to when I was running my agency. Is sometimes we'd have these, you know, all hands meetings or kickoff meetings or whatever, where maybe three or four of the people that were there didn't need to be there, and we weren't really quantifying it as as you know why they were or the value it was taking up in the business. Yeah, exactly right. In fact, I um, I had a client who I've helped grow from 60 employees up to 500 employees over the last four years. And um, they were having a daily huddle for all their employees. All 500 people go to their daily huddle, which is powerful. But I have an app called Meeting Cost. And I plug in the salaries of different um, sections of labor and then how many people are at each level. And it shows them literally the minute by minute cost of actually running meetings just to illustrate the point so that people understand you know, we only have three resources, people, time, and money, and we need to get the highest, highest ROI off all three of those. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, you might uh, change your mind on the 500-person daily huddle once you see that number or, you know, think, well, well is that- you, just, you do it, but you, you do it, but you make sure that people understand we're not fucking around. Excuse my language. We're here for a purpose and we're going to get results out of it. And it's so important. It, we're, we're investing a quarter million a year on running our seven-minute daily huddle but that's why we're doing it is we know that it's worth the investment. So let's take it seriously and let's really show up and, and pay attention. Cameron, how can our audience find out more about you? Is there anything that you have uh, for them to check out? Yeah. The, so my four books, uh, Double Double, Meeting Suck, The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, and then also my fourth book um, called Vivid Vision are all available on uh, Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. And then my main website, CameronHerald.com, and then the COOalliance.com. Very nice. And we will link out to all of those in the show notes. So if you guys want to check out Cameron's books, highly recommend it. Uh, I just got the uh, that advanced release of Vivid Vision. So if you guys heard Cameron talk about the Vivid Vision today, um, his book is a, a tiny investment in making this very valuable thing happen for your business. So I highly recommend you guys picking that up um, and also check out all of his other stuff. Um, Cameron, you're a gift to the entrepreneurial scene. What you do is, is fantastic. I think sharing this knowledge and this insight from your many years of experience is something that uh, uh, we all find so valuable. So thank you for that. Hey, Brent, you're welcome, man. Thanks very much for having me. And I hope we get to see you at a Maverick event or a new event soon as well. Sounds good, man. All right, guys, that is our show for uh, this week on the Digital Agency Show. Stay tuned each and every week for learning how to grow your agency. Until then, I'm Brent Weaver. Thanks again for tuning in to the Digital Agency Show. Before we close out, I wanted to check in on your answer to my question from the beginning of the episode. Are you stressed out, cash crunched, fed up with your business? Now, if you feel this way, you might think that you have a lead generation problem. Maybe that it's the area you live in or that this market has gotten too competitive. Maybe you think that your business can't be turned around. And I want you to think again. In my many years of experience, I can tell you now it's something much deeper that you're likely not even aware of yet. 
It's like a client who says they need a website, Facebook ads, or a mobile app when they don't even realize it's a deeper challenge that's blocking them from success. Now, if you'd like to find out what your deeper challenge is, then I want to invite you to apply for a strategy call where we're going to dig into those underlying issues in your business and get you moving forward like never before. The aha moments that you're going to have will shift the way you think forever, and you'll finally get the answers as to why your business hasn't taken off. The number one most important decision to rapidly grow your business starts by booking your YouGurus strategy call today. Go to yougurus.com slash apply to start the application process for this free call. Once again, go to yougurus.com slash apply to get started. Thanks again for tuning in. Join us next week for another episode of the Digital Agency Show. 